Well, uh, there's a place that's familiar to me, very special to me. It's about uh, three and a half hours' drive north of Cape Town uh, on the edge of the Karoo Desert. It's called the, the Cedarburg Wilderness Area, and, uh, and it is, it's magnificent. And uh, when Jesus returns and ushers in the new creation, I will, well, if, if he will allow me, I will, uh, I will live there uh, in the valley between the mountains on the, on the bank of the river. Um, and you're all invited to come visit me. Um, one or two of you may even enjoy seeing the kind of terrain that a Land Rover actually belongs in. Um, <laughs> and when you come, I'll take you to a certain spot where uh, if you stand there when the sun sets, the whole western face of the one mountain, it's called the Wolfberg Mountain, turns red. And it's just, it's magnificent. Um, it's not hard to see the beauty of the place. It's, uh, it's obvious. It's it's beyond words. Um, but the longer you spend in the mountains, the more they reveal their beauty to you. Some things are obvious on the surface, but some aren't. Some take a while. The smell of the, the feinbos, which is the, veg, the, the indigenous uh, vegetation. Uh, the feel of the ancient trees. Um, the cold wind that blows in the afternoon. The... The, the freezing river water that you, you swim in in the rock pools to get the stink off you at the end of every day. The sound of the birds and the insects and the baboons. And if you're very lucky, maybe you'll hear a leopard now and then, which I've heard once. Um, and after sunset, of course, stars like you wouldn't believe. It's one of the places which has the highest visibility of, 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 uh, of stars anywhere on the, on the planet. Um, well, the thing is that you know, one sunset there is all it would take for you to know that this is a special place. All it would take for you to know it's magnificent. But if you spend several months in those mountains, as I have, cumulatively, hiking, swimming in the pool, sleeping under the stars, it, it takes hold of you in a way that's, that's different from that. It's not, we say different, it's more than that initial um, impression of beauty. Beauty can be both obvious... And slowly revealed, beauty can captivate and it can transform. And uh, in just a few months here in Kenilworth, it's, it's been enough for me to see an obvious beauty in this church. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I see here this evening, the Lord's beloved who have chosen to love one another, and it is beautiful in God's sight. From all over the country, from, uh, from Sheffield and uh, London via Leicester, from Solihull, from Leamington Spa, um, from Liverpool, from Yorkshire to Kent, from Northern Ireland, from South Africa, from Holland, from Germany, from India, from Malaysia, even, if you will believe it, from Coventry. <laughs> we have all come committed to love one another for the Lord's honor. And it is obvious. In Sundays, uh, on Sundays, in home groups, in prayer, in conversation, in practical care, in carrying one another's burdens, in sharing the joys of those rejoicing, in sharing the sadness of those grieving, in leading in song, in setting up speakers, in making tea, in cleaning the kitchen in laboring over God's word together, in phone calls to check in on one another, in planning and admin, 
in serving one another in a thousand ways, seen and unseen, is it not obvious that a greater power than our own goodwill and benevolence is at work here in Kenilworth Community Church? It is obvious. And I don't think I'd be flirting with presumption to say that our Father is pleased with our love for one another. Because to love one another is part of what it means to love the Father. And to love the Father is to love one another. Let me illustrate. I love my sisters. I have two younger sisters. And I love them. But as I get older, and the more I come to understand my parents' love for my sisters, so the more I love them. It is only right, it's only natural for a son who loves his parents to love what his parents love. And the more I see my parents' concern for my sisters, for their well-being, their love for them, so the more I love my sisters. So isn't it obvious that as the Lord's people, we should and do love one another? But just as the love of God in this church is as obviously beautiful as the first glance at a sunset, so too there is a beauty in love that, it re- that reveals itself slowly. Um, it is wonderful to stand and stare at the sunset. But the Apostle John wants us to do more than just drive in, watch the sunset, hop in our cars and, and drive home. He would have us stay in the mountains long enough to, for them to get hold of our souls and change us. Now John recorded these words of Jesus, but he took about 60 years, give or take, to reflect on this night before he wrote his gospel. And when he wrote, he told us not only the record of what actually happened, but he also told us why he wrote it, what he aimed to achieve in writing it. He also wrote some letters to the first generation of the church, uh, probably also wrote those about 50 or 60 years after the events of this evening. He'd had a long time to reflect on what happened, on what Jesus said and did. And so the letter we now know as 1 John is, in one sense, pretty much a commentary just on this command. So we'll listen carefully both to John's telling of the story, of the events of that evening, and to his interpretation of it, to see why, why does it so please our Father that we have come together committed to love one another as Christ has loved us. So, we'll follow John's account from the beginning. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to John chapter 1. John opens his Gospel. Let me get there. John opens his gospel, uh, in a sense, giving us a a look behind the scenes of eternity. But what is the first normal human interaction between Jesus has with another person that John records? It's from verse 35. Let me read you the, the relevant bit. The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, not John who wrote this gospel. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them, saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, you will see. So they followed. This is the first thing John records. The first interaction between Jesus and another person in this gospel is them following. Later, verse 43, Jesus looked at him. 
This is and, uh, Simon looked at him and said, uh, sorry, I've lost my place here. Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. A little further on in chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus is um, explaining that he is the good shepherd. And he says, when, the, when he, that is the good shepherd, has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. Again in chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Chapter 12, verse 26, Whoever serves me must follow me. Jesus had consistently, from the very beginning of his relationship with his disciples, taught that they must follow him. And Peter was trying his very best to follow. Here, in fact, in, back in chapter 13 for our, our passage, uh, Peter says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. To the ends of the earth I'll follow you. I'll lay, I'll lay down my life for you. But then Jesus says something astonishing. Quite shocking, in fact. You cannot follow me. But for three years, he had taught his disciples to follow. And they're trying. And not just Peter. Matthew tells us in uh, Matthew 26 that all the disciples said the same thing. They'd never leave Jesus. Even if it cost them their lives, they would follow him. They wanted to follow the master they'd come to love. Their master, their teacher, their rabbi. But Jesus says... Chapter 13, verse 33, you cannot follow. Where I am going, you cannot follow. Verse 36, you cannot follow. <coughs> verse 38, your following will fail. He says, after, this is after Peter says, I will follow you anywhere. I will lay down my life. Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you, tonight, this night, you will disown me three times. Your following will fail. I imagine how they would have felt at that moment. They'd followed his footsteps for three years. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us, uh, record how Peter said, but, but Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. They'd restructured their whole lives around him. They'd spent three years walking the dusty roads with Jesus, visiting towns and villages with him, watching him heal the sick, listening as he challenged the religious and social establishment. Fishing with him, eating and drinking, being at once challenged and convicted by his teaching and comforted by his presence. But now, you cannot follow. Your following will fail. How would you have felt in that moment? Confused, lost, bewildered, alone? I, I, I find it hard to even imagine. And then Jesus says, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. What a, what a ridiculous thing to say. How could their hearts not be troubled? But that's next week's passage, and there's more than enough troubling things in this passage to keep us busy. Um, Jesus, in the same interaction, says some other really difficult things. Back in, in verse 34, he, says, he gives a command, the love one another command, and he clearly expects his disciples to obey him, so it sounds like he still expects them to follow him, even though he's just said, you cannot follow. Verse 35, if you obey this command, everyone will know you are my disciples. In other words, everyone will know that you're following me. Verse 36, 
You cannot follow now, but you will later. You will follow. So he called them to follow three years before this. They did follow. They want to keep following. But Jesus tells them they cannot follow him, even though they all insist that they will follow to the death. No, says Jesus, you can't. Your following will fail. But at the same time, you must obey my commands and live such that it's obvious to all the world that you really are following me. What's going on? How can he say in one breath you can't, your following will fail, and in the next breath you must continue to follow? And in fact, obey a command that's impossible to obey. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Can you or I love Jesus? Uh, love as Jesus loved his own? No, we can't. Of our own resolve, we can't. We are unable to obey this command. We are unable to follow Jesus in this way. We can enjoy Christian teaching. But to actually love as Jesus loved, our own emotional strength, we just don't have it in us. Peter... <coughs> Ignores this command and gets back to what's on his mind in verse 36. Jesus, where are you going? Where? And Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will later. What did he mean? Where was he going? Did he mean he was returning to heaven? And in chapter 13, verse 1, remember Jesus said he knew his hour had come to leave the world and go to his father. So maybe he meant that. Maybe he meant, I'm going to heaven and you can't follow now, but you will later. Or did he mean he was going to the cross? Chapter 14, verse 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now my hour has come. The time for the cross. Is that what he meant? Well, to be honest, it's difficult to know. John enjoys writing in such a way that preserves layers of meaning. It's not always easy to know he means precisely this and not that. Personally, I think that John having had more than half a century to reflect on this, to understand Jesus' ways, and to see how his call to follow had worked out in the life of his friends, the other disciples, who were all martyred for their witness to Jesus. I think he meant both. I think he meant he was returning to the Father in heaven by way of the cross. So did Jesus mean his disciples should uh, follow him in self-sacrificial love. They should love one another as he had loved them. Yes. Did he mean they would later follow to the presence of his Father in heaven? Yes. But right now, this night, they cannot follow. Jesus has called them to follow where, or follow as, or both. They cannot follow yet. Something must happen first that changes everything. Verse 31. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. What a way to describe what lay before him. The sufferings he would endure in the coming, in the coming hours, the shame he would take upon himself. Infinitely worse than that, the fearsome and terrible wrath of the Holy God of Heaven as he became sin for us. Children, let me ask you and all of those who remember being children, <laughs> when dad is really angry with you and you know you deserve it, what do you want to do? 
You want to shrink away, don't you? You want to hide. You want to be invisible. Well, so terrifying, so immense was the wrath of God that Luke tells us, chapter 23 of Luke, that the sun's light failed. So immense is the wrath of God towards sin that not only could Peter not follow Jesus into the presence of the Holy Judge, but the very stars of the universe stopped shining as if to hide themselves from the sight of the Holy One in anger. But Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Why? Well, because the glory of man, the greatest glory of man, is to do what pleases the Father. To be so tuned to the Father's heart, that His pleasure becomes our pleasure. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, is glorified, as He shows the supreme worth and excellence of the Father on the cross. Jesus, in willing obedience to the Father, knowing the love, the faithfulness of the Father, knowing the Father's justice demands the penalty of death, and that the Father's justice demands His vindication and resurrection, Jesus demonstrates the glory of the Father. So the Father is glorified in the love and trust of His Son, and in vindicating His trust, by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in glory. Yes, the cross demonstrates the glory of God's holiness and justice and mercy and righteousness and salvation. But supremely, above all else, the cross shows the glory of the Son in the demonstration of his love for the Father and the glory of the Father in the demonstration of his love for the Son. Now what does this have to do with following Jesus. Well, at the beginning of John's Gospel, that is, you recall how the disciples first understood Jesus. John uh, chapter 1, verse 38. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. But Jesus is more than a teacher. In fact, at the end of his Gospel, in uh, chapter 20, John tells us the reason he wrote this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He is the Messiah in whose name we have life. Not just that we may be impressed by his moral teachings, not just by his ethical example, not just by the coherence of a Christian worldview, not just that we may believe even, but more that we may believe He is the Messiah, the Savior, and have life in His name. Not just eternal life, this is not just about duration of life, it's a certain kind of life. In fact, it's the same life that John told us about in chapter 1, from verse 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and in Him was life. And this is what John wants you to have, Jesus' life, Christ's life dwelling in you. So much more than just physical bodily life. So much more than just an unending duration of life. So you see, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower, is so much more than just to say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to try and uphold His teachings. It is to have the very life of Jesus live in you. 
in, in, in his commentary on this in 1 John, in his letter 1 John, that is, chapter 4, John writes, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. And listen to this. In this world we are like Jesus. This is how we know that the very life of Jesus lives in us. That his love is made complete among us. In other words, the mission of God's love is not complete just with the forgiveness of your sin. The mission of love, of God's love, is made complete when in this world we are like Jesus. So to be a disciple then, to be a follower, is to be a learner from Jesus who is the great teacher, but it is so much more. It is to be transformed by the indwelling life of the Son of God, such that in this world, right here and now, we are like Jesus. And what does it mean to be like Jesus? Well, we see from this passage, it means to love the Father, to be heart and soul devoted to the glory of the Father, and to love all that the Father loves, supremely His Son, and the Church, His Bride, for whom He went to the cross and called it glory. So in the command of Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, we are right to see the obvious beauty of that command taking shape among us. But friends, let's see more than love in action. Let's see the mission of God, of God's love being perfected, being made complete among us in this world, here in Kenilworth. We are being transformed by the very life of God to be like Jesus so that all the world will know that we are His disciples. This is why KCC exists. This is what we are here for. This is our reason for being, to glorify the Father by being like Jesus in Kenilworth and beyond. And I would urge you, with Wednesday in mind, to be prayerfully seeking the Lord about this in these next few days. Be here on Wednesday night at 8 as we start to, to think and talk about together what does this mean? How do we give shape to this? Practically speaking, what is this going to look like in our lives as a community? Friends, let us love one another as Jesus has loved us to the glory of the Father. The life of God, the life of Jesus lives in us. What an amazing thing. I'm going to pray and we will close there. Father, we give you thanks that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That Jesus went for us where we could not go. Into the presence of the judge. To carry our sin. And bear the penalty that we deserve. But thank you, Father, 
that your love means more than that. It means not just that we are forgiven, but that we are transformed. That the life of your Son lives in us. So that we will be like Jesus here and now. Today, tomorrow, at work, at the office, at school, in our homes. In all we do and where we do it, we would be like Jesus. This is the mission of your love. Father, thank you for the evidence of your grace at work amongst us. Thank you that we see your love taking shape in us as a community. Help us, Father, to see more than just that. Help us to see this in the perspective of what you are doing in the world. That this is the beginning of the new creation. That in and through us you are displaying your Son to the world. Father, as we think about the practicalities of life together as a church, especially this coming week, Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to be sensitive to the leading of your Spirit? Would you move on each of our hearts individually to to know whether you are joining us to this body? And if so, to be fully committed to that. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.